0: listening to the However Improbable podcast, a Sherlock Holmes book club that narrates and discusses Arthur Conan Doyle's classic tales. We're reading them in the order they occurred and the lives of the great detective and his good doctor.
1: Holmes himself famously said that there's nothing new under the sun, but we're willing to
0: give him a run for his money. I'm Sarah Kolb. And I'm Marissa McCurrio. This week, we're talking wild goose chases, home museums, and the benefits of private detection. The very seasonal The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle is the perfect Holmes story to cozy up to with a hot chocolate and blanket. To listen to our audio adaptation of the story, go back an episode. We'll be here.
1: The Blue Carbuncle was first published in The Strand in 1892, and it's found in the short story collection The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Baring Gould places the story in December of 1887, making it the last in the year. We've had eight stories that we've decided are happening in 1887 mm-hmm. anyway, <laughs> making it the busiest year for Holmes and Watson, or at least the year with the most stories Watson
0: wanted to narrate. In The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle, Commissioner Peterson arrives at Baker Street, informing Holmes of a goose and a hat lost on Christmas in a street scuffle. Two days later, Peterson returns to Baker Street with a jewel that was lodged in the goose's throat, the Countess Morcar's missing blue carbuncle for which there is a thousand pound reward. After identifying the owner of the lost items, Holmes and Watson are led to a street market where they encounter the thief.
1: James Ryder, who's an attendant to the Hotel Cosmopolitan where the carbuncle was stolen, was influenced by the countess's maid to steal it and frame a plumber with a record, John Horner. Having heard his story and connected the final dots, Holmes declares that by letting Ryder go, he may save a soul by committing a felony. (laughs) (laughs) Ryder leaves and Holmes and Watson move on to a new mystery. What did you think of this story? Sarah. I mean, this is one of those quintessential home stories that just makes me so happy. I'm really tickled we got to air it in the winter season. This was yes. totally unintentional. Um
0: completely coincidental.
1: At one point I didn't think it was going to shake out. I thought it was going to be like in the spring sometime. So I'm really happy like we got to air it right in the middle of a bunch of holiday things and that was really nice and um made it feel even more special and even better, but It's, like, every sentence and every action in this story is so good. The guys in their house deducing the hat and then them running all over London and then Holmes taking matters into his own hands. It's just, it's, like, a perfect Holmes tale. I love it.
0: Yeah, it's a classic. Definitely something I like to reread around this time every year or watch an adaptation of, because there are several that are quite good adaptations. Yeah, it's just, like, a lovely, cozy wintertime story and i really enjoy it it's got a nice little mystery the stakes are pretty low in terms of
1: a mystery i think it's a really well set up mystery too where you have all of the names and the details presented to you as the story unfolds and then you get revealed and and hear how things shook out which i feel like the last couple have not been great structural mysteries even if they've been great stories so that Mm -hmm. was nice to see like oh you can set up a murder mystery (laughs) or a a jewel thief mystery the way it should be structured, Doyle. It's nice to know that he can do that.
0: Yeah, it is a nice, pleasing little math problem, almost. Mm -hmm. Like, everything just fits together very nicely, and it's just one thing leads to the next in a very pleasing manner.
1: As, you know, we're getting to the end of our year and Holmes and Watson are getting to the end of their year, do you want to talk about the year 1887 for them before we get into the details of this case in
0: particular? Yeah, I do, because I, I think it's unique the year 1887 we've had a lot of stories set in this year a lot of significant big I think famous Sherlock Holmes stories set in this year I also want to talk about 1887 without giving too much away about 1888 because there is such a seismic shift in their relationship in the way that they they live their lives in 1888 so we're concluding a year that is much of the same since they met but is also at a high point
1: totally i think this is like this is the year of the good stuff you know this sort of classic holmes watson dynamic that you think of with the interesting cases and great villains and holmes unraveling and his fame growing and watson chronicling lots and lots of really interesting stories back to back
0: they've really grown into who they are as characters and their relationship with one another at this point
1: yeah and we'll see where the new year takes them it's gonna be interesting it sure is
0: (laughs) (laughs) well and it's interesting to think back about the stories that we've covered this year in our year in 2021 (laughs) and also in 1887 because we've done you know this a scandal in bohemia we did um the redheaded league yeah. We did Oh, um the five orange pips. The five orange pips, we did the dying detective, which yeah. I think are all really well known. Yeah, so those are very classic yeah. cases that
1: people are familiar with for sure.
0: And for the most part, Baron Gould is the one who's guiding our hand in eighteen eighty seven. Whether or not it makes sense. <laughs> we always agree with his reasoning.
1: Even though sometimes the chronology didn't fit together perfectly, I feel like the tenor of the cases in this year have really, like, the way that they've flown into each other has made a lot of sense, even if the details sometimes don't.
0: So, I don't know, any final thoughts about where Holmes and Watson are and their friendship? Or
1: It's a really nice case to sort of wrap up their year, wrap up our year with, because it just is a perfect encapsulation of all the good stuff that's going on right now. And like I said, I think things are – that dynamic is going to change a lot, and we're going to have a lot to say about how it shifts and grows and maybe isn't as easy, where they're just paddling along. You know, this is, like, the best day of their lives right I think now. that's
0: precisely it. It's, it's, it's easy. Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just simple, pure friendship where there's nothing <laughs> too complex about it. There's nothing um, – that's going to up the ante right. of that relationship as it chugs along its natural progression.
1: But of course, things cannot stay that way forever. No. And the next, year, our next story buds. that we're going to delve into, which is a novel, is going to introduce some things that it's going to be the start on the our trajectory towards the final problem. So yes. next year is going to be... A bit of a whirl- roller coaster for Holmes and Watson.
0: It is. I'm 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 excited to get to it because although I like the stasis and I like the comfort, I'm excited for the drama. Oh, I know. Yeah. For Love real. me There's some There's very drama. little
1: drama in this story. Yeah. It's all good stuff. Well, and
0: I think also as we move into 1888, we're going to start seeing again the f- the fruits of our chronology. We're doing this for a reason rather than just arbitrarily going chronologically.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree with that
0: too. So, let's talk setting real quick, too. Yeah. Because I think there's some nice seasonal setting in this story, particularly if you are somewhere where it's cold right now. Yes. Hopefully, you are not in
1: Colorado, where we're having one of the latest snows ever, (laughs) and you're somewhere where this is going to feel a little more seasonal. Has it it not snowed at all today
0: in Colorado? Not in November. Oh, my goodness. As someone who loves the cold, I really (laughs) enjoyed reading this story and just, like, diving into the setting. There's a great passage towards the beginning, I believe. Or maybe, you know, it's when they're on their way to the market, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where Watson writes, quote, It was a bitter night, so we drew on our ulsters and wrapped cravats about our throats. Outside, the stars were shining coldly in a cloudless sky, and the breath of one of the passerby blew out into smoke like so many pistol shots. That's so nice. That's so good. Like so many that's, pistol shots. I love that.
1: Yeah. You can see it. One of those big winter nights where there's nothing in the air, mm-hmm. and it's so crisp and cold. Yes. Ugh. And the air inside your lungs hurts. Dreamy. Like that's what this feels like yes. right now. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of beautiful setting of like how things feel and what this winter evening that they're running all over town feels mm-hmm. like, which I really love. It's very atmospheric in the story.
0: It is. Um, and I, when I was living in London mm. in undergrad, I was there in December. Nice. And it was not cold. It was, like, no. 50 degrees. <laughs> and I was like, um, I have been led through a myriad of <laughs> Film and literature that it was going to be chilly in London in December. (laughs) And in fact, I'm wearing shorts and tights. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it can't
1: all be this. Unfortunately.
0: You've got this note about Watson's detective skills, speaking in terms of, like, where the characters are when we begin. Because this is something we've been tracking.
1: Yeah, you know, I think, like, particularly as we're thinking about this is... Sort of a a closing the book on a certain era. One of the great moments in this story is Holmes sort of challenges Watson to look at the hat that is kind of kicks this mystery off. And we've seen Watson give it a pretty good shot and maybe come up with the right clues, Mm -hmm. but not be able to put them together correctly before. Uh, I don't know if it goes quite that well for him in his detective skills this way. He tries so hard (laughs) and comes up with nothing.
0: (laughs) I think Holmes makes some... um deductive leaps in this one as well Yeah, (laughs) I mean the whole bit about Henry Baker being smart because he's got a big head that's kind of just like jokey jokey Mm. or at least that's how I'm reading it because I don't think by the time Conan Doyle was writing this that phrenology was really being taken that seriously
1: I mean we do get the character who is a phrenologist in Baskerville later on and they kinda of laugh at him so right. I
0: assume so. Yeah. Yes. So that was kind of like, okay, Holmes, that's not really an actual deduction. And then also the whole his wife stopped loving him, that seems like a leap to me. Yeah. As well. I don't know. She's
1: not brushing the dust off of his hat.
0: Right. <laughs> Maybe she's busy. <laughs> so I, I go easy on Watson. So the hat leads us into the mystery of the blue carbuncle.
1: Yeah. Holmes sets this one up um, quite nicely for us, which I like. And it also helps, I think, justify our chronological decisions because Mm -hmm. he name drops a couple of specific cases. So, I mean, they're they're sitting here puzzling over this hat, kind of wondering where this mystery is going to take them. And Holmes makes the statement that this problem may be striking and bizarre without being criminal. And Watson says their last six case, of their last six cases, three have been entirely free of any legal crime. Mm -hmm. And he uses the examples of a case of identity, obviously Scandal in Bohemia, and then the man with the twisted lip. All of which we've talked about in the last year. Yeah, so that was really pleasing. Arguably in Scandal in Bohemia, the only person who commits a crime is Watson himself. Right. Yeah. But he's not going to hang up on those details.
0: No, 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 no course not
1: (laughs) sort of lumping this case into this category of mysteries that are not necessarily criminal but are puzzle like logical puzzles or Mm -hmm. people doing strange things that don't make sense
0: yeah and i like to see that in a series of detective stories Mm. where it's not just like murder mysteries and things all the time where it is kind of a softer crime where it's a cozy mystery puzzle. Yeah, anyway, I like that. I really like
1: that. I don't think they're entirely right about this case, though, because, of course, there a theft does take place. Mm-hmm. Some crime is mm-hmm. very much committed. But he is right that nobody gets charged with anything, mostly because of his own decision making. Right. So.
0: This is a great passage as well, where Holmes is talking about this, where he says that, remember, Watson, that though we have so homely a thing as a goose at the end of this chain... We have at the other a man who will certainly get seven years penal servitude unless we can establish his innocence. It is possible that our inquiry may but confirm his guilt. But in any case, we have a line of investigation which has been missed by the police and which a singular chance has placed into our hands. Let us follow it to the bitter end.
1: And then, of course, he says,
0: faces to the south then and
1: quick march. (laughs) I mean, this case is better than a Christmas present for Sherlock Holmes. Oh,
0: for sure. It's striking to me just reading that, that this man, the plumber, right, James Horner, who they're talking about, who may get seven years penal servitude for stealing this gem? That is rough.
1: Yeah, rough going, stealing from a countess.
0: Yeah. It is, again, just a puzzle. Like, he's thinking it might not really be – it might just end up where the – expected guilt is but it's still worthwhile because the police don't know what they're doing
1: yeah the police again another story where the police other than the commissioner with the goose who kind of shows up and kicks this stuff off into motion they're really very absent and he's really not very useful he just happens to eat this bird for dinner
0: yeah his being a policeman has very little to do with the story itself so again we are in a copless mystery story Of which there Mm -hmm. are so many, you know, doing this podcast, I've realized how few interactions Holmes has had with the police so far.
1: Yeah, that is really, really interesting, particularly in a lot of these, again, sort of well known cases that we've talked about. We've hit a lot of big ones, and Mm -hmm. of them, very few actually have any of the cops as characters, even though you think about them being kind of iconic. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I mean, like Redheaded League, kind of twisted lip kind of it's not at this point anyway he's not that chummy with them in the way that i think he's going to become much more so later on
0: mm-hmm. well that's interesting to think about too in terms of her chronology where you know holmes and watson been working together for what is it six years mm-hmm. now yeah and holmes is still on the outskirts of the police lestrade hasn't really showed up very much now it's been a while We saw him in um, Noble Bachelor. I don't think since then, though. That's been a while. Yeah. Again, really still working outside the purview of the police, which I Mm -hmm. think is great. (laughs) Anything else to say about the mystery? I really love, I think the experience
1: of reading this story is really satisfying because of the way that it unfolds. As you've been saying, like this puzzle, where you really are just like, piece by piece following this thread as it unravels, and you're inched towards something that sort of makes sense where these things are connected, but these series of scenes that seem a little random until all of a sudden they add up. It's just so satisfying to read.
0: Well, we should talk about maybe the gem. So it's what the story is named for. And there's quite a history behind the gem. I, I
1: like the moment um, when the commissioner, whatever his name is, mm-hmm. charges back into their room after he's found it. And mm-hmm. they're all like, oh, of course, the Countess is missing Blue Carbuncle. <laughs> like, yeah, obviously <laughs> okay. that... That yeah. blue rock that someone found inside of a dead bird is totally what that is. Yeah, <laughs> It's really funny
0: to me. The Blue Carbuncle. Holmes says that there have been two murders, a vitriol throwing, a suicide, and several robberies brought about for the sake of this 40 grain weight of crystallized charcoal. Who would think that so pretty a toy would be the purveyor to the gallows and the prison?
1: It's a good line. I love that. Yeah. That's a good line and i think one of those um sort of short story effective pieces of writing where you get so much potential story in the background with just that little sentence and he doesn't have to go into any more detail but you're just like you understand this is kind of a big deal i want to know how this countess got it she's a very all the women in this story are kind of background characters
0: yeah they definitely are <laughs> yeah so will we know that holmes he he sort of explains where the gem has come from. We don't know how the Countess has received it, but Holmes says that it's not yet 20 years old, and it was found in the banks of the Amoy River in southern China. So, again, bringing in a little bit of that <laughs> Eastern flair that Conan Doyle is so well known for. Yeah. Um. Again, it, I mean, I feel like a broken record bringing this up in every single episode, <laughs> but Conan Doyle does it in every single story. Yeah, in so. every single story. But it's, again, in this case, it's, it's a physical object instead of a person, which is unique, but you have this object that is coming from the East, infiltrating the borders of Great Britain and just wreaking havoc right. on its populace. This was not among my recommendations for read-alikes in this episode, because I think I've recommended it before, but this is very um, The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. Very similar vibes. But yeah, we don't know how the Countess has obtained this gem, and we don't really know that she receives it again at the end. I mean, we assume so, but it's never depicted.
1: Yeah, the story kind of just cuts off. With Holmes, this funny little line about,
0: "Let's turn our attention to
1: another bird, so they can go eat dinner." Um, yeah, but I mean, he says that he he puts he keeps it in his possession and he writes her a letter, but he never says like, "Yeah, then I gave it back."
0: So, right. I don't know. Well, I think it's interesting because there is this cycle of violence um, perpetrated by this jewel, and what it might say if Conan Doyle had deigned to disrupt that cycle of violence, which I guess you could argue that Holmes does by letting Ryder go true yeah and we'll get nice to that to whole thing that the whole enactment of justice that holmes does at the end of the story that's definitely the most meaty part of the story but i think it is an interesting question to posit whether or not like maybe holmes does not return this gem you know who knows
1: there's sort of the the true logistics thought which like he probably has to give it back because Mm. clearly it was famously missing and it's been in the papers and there's a reward you know maybe they get a little paid for this for their trouble and get to collect the reward money but also like the thought of him hanging on to it is appealing to me just because that sense of of him keeping trophies that have value in certain ways and what he places value on Mm -hmm. and also that idea that if it's sort of locked away in Baker Street it can't go back to someone who's then gonna Pass it on and have it continue harming other people.
0: Right. And you hit on this really great point about Holmes collecting things, which I really mm-hmm. want to talk about because there is mm-hmm. this throwaway line in the story, but it is, I think, really fascinating. Where Holmes says that it laid an egg after it was dead, the bonniest, brightest little blue egg that ever was seen. I have it here in my museum. And those last two words, my museum fascinate me utterly because I think it is suggestive of Holmes having like a collection of right. weird like of weird things yeah. yes in his in his rooms we know from what was it the last story I think the dunk detective yeah yeah where Holmes about has his gallery like, of boy band ball <laughs> of criminals yeah <laughs> and we know he's a, a a collector we've talked about this before that is essentially what he does by drawing clients into his rooms, is that he is bringing them into the space of his home and collecting stories, and he often collects objects and relics. Mm-hmm. And I think in many adaptations, when you see Baker Street, it's just filled to the brim with, like, odd bits and bobs that Tchotchkes. are yeah. old like relics of, stuff. of cases. I mean, like, the Irene Adler photograph, for example, is probably the most famous one. In, um... Musgrave ritual he is
1: putting off cleaning their house and he whips out this old box with these probably fairly pricey old coins that should be in an actual museum but instead are under his bed
0: the larger sentiment of collecting notes on cases which he did before (laughs) Watson
1: but I like the sentiment of him defining he's not just like I've got it here with my stuff or in my desk it's in his museum yes
0: yes it's like a curated collection, and I think it's more interesting because it's in his domestic space. Like, that is really, that, that combination of collection and putting it in the place where you live is what really fascinates me. Like, it's just mingled in with the rest of his domestic life. So, yeah, so who is the audience for this museum? I mean, him. It's just him and Watson, and hardly even Watson. Watson.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And only Watson when he, like, needs to distract Watson from making him clean his room.
0: But there's something very, um, like, very decadent and very bohemian about this quality, I think, of Holmes. And I think the other thing about it is that because these objects are representative of the criminal or the sinister or, in some cases, the macabre, that there is something unusual about this collection, and unusual about the fact that he would bring it into his domestic space. Like, he is cultivating this very unique domestic space that I don't think you see in a lot of Victorian fiction. I mean, it's almost, it's a it's a cabinet of curiosities, in a way, but instead yeah. of secured to a cabinet, it's, like, all over. Just the everything. Yes.
1: Yeah, and I, I, you can imagine being a client walking into that room and just seeing these remnants of, you know, and the bullet holes in the wall and the knife through the mail. And when Baker Street, like set designs for Baker Street, look like the homes in question, that's when it works best for me. It's mm-hmm. when they're, like, those sort of reflective of, of, of each other. Yes. And I think that's very yes. based in the stories and the way that the space that he lives in is curated to look a very certain way that like is expressive of who he is and what his profession is. Because these things are all wrapped up together. There is no, like, personal life, professional life. He doesn't have an office that he goes to. Everything is in one bundle for him.
0: I don't think what I'm about to say is really um, particular to the story specifically, but perhaps better suited to other stories. But I think Watson's inclusion in that is really interesting. We've talked about part of the reason why Holmes and Watson get along so well or the evidence of Watson's meaning in Holmes's life is is that entanglement between work and personal life where there is no distinction, and that demonstrates that Watson is so meaningful to Holmes is because there is not a distinction between the two, but rather them being all wrapped up in one another is really what the most meaningful thing for Holmes can be, right? Um, so what does it say about... Holmes as a character and Holmes and Watson's relationship, that Watson is in essence like part of this collection. You know, I mean, we'll talk about yeah. this in a later story. One of my favorite lines is I can't remember which story it's in. Oh, it's about how he w- says, like,
1: Watson's become one of his habits. Yes,
0: it's like it's one of my favorite passages, and maybe yeah. may be my favorite passage in the entirety mm-hmm. of the canon. I remember what story, it's a later story. I it is, and though. I'm looking forward to getting to it, but. You're precisely right. Like, or Watson says that Holmes was a man of habits and I had become one of them. Yeah. And I I love that sentiment. Um, So, again, I I think there's something to ponder there that may shine through more clearly in other stories. Using the language of the museum from the Blue Carbuncle and then, like, applying it elsewhere in other stories would be interesting to think about. Um, And, again, I think all this to say is that it really harkens back to this idea of Holmes as a decadent.
1: I mean, it's sort of up in the air whether or not Watson is living in Baker Street (laughs) throughout this year. Uh, In this one, it sort of seems like he's not, but um, again, I think those are sort of side details that Mm -hmm. sort of functionally or narratively they're very close, so it doesn't really matter if he is or isn't. But even when he is, I think his own sort of Establish presence inside of Baker Street is very minimal. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> Where clearly it's defined by Holmes and Holmes's profession and Holmes's interests. Mm-hmm. So, in that sense, Watson is sort of like, like all of these things are occupying space. He's also like, and here's my writer. Here's my photo of yeah. Irene Adler. <laughs> and here's this jewel. And here's my biographer sitting yes. at his <laughs> desk in a corner.
0: I know, like Watson's got like a folder of notes in the living rooms of Baker Street, and that's it. Because all his other stuff is up in his room and I don't think he probably has that much stuff either.
1: No. He seems like he's a pretty, I mean, probably once he gets married more so, but, sure, you know, That would be interesting to
0: talk about, like, what comes back to Baker Street yeah. eventually. Oh, I know. We're getting way ahead of ourselves, oh. but. Fuck. I just love thinking about Baker Street as a space. hmm You know, it's like the most famous literary space of all time. It's a museum. I mean, it literally is a museum now. That you can pay and go tour. <laughs> right, yeah.
1: I know that's very, um, you know, someone knew what Holmes wanted. Yeah. <laughs> I don't necessarily know if he wanted people to be buying tickets to it, but.
0: Verging on better to start thinking Yeah, about. that's a
1: little. Um, <laughs> something I also, talking about Watson, who is mm-hmm. sort of a non-presence, except for that maybe that first scene, he's not super involved in the rest of the story <laughs> He's just along for the ride. He's following Holmes around yeah. just to see how Having things fun. pan out. But, but with this sentiment of Holmes commenting on his museum and his, his way of sort of collecting the remnants of his cases is to keep case files and to keep objects. And then Watson's clearly is to write them down and share them. And so I think that that's a nice parallel with their two characteristics and who they mm-hmm. are as people is like how they're documenting these experiences Um, that they're both going through from these like very different sort of professional perspectives of the detective versus the writer biographer however whatever you want to call him in this case
0: yeah i love that because
1: they both do it they just do it differently
0: yes watson is absolutely another little collector oh yeah
1: of stories (laughs) he just is like has turned it into a normal hobby right yeah is a little more respectable even though it's like he definitely has all of these like pages of his notes and all of the notes he's taking in people's meetings and observations and his diary entries and stuff hidden somewhere in his house, which that's a little weird.
0: (laughs) And I love it. So this is the most significant aspect of the story is Holmes acting as a judge. He really holds court. So they
1: they sort of accidentally find the guy, like they're gonna keep following this trail to the end and keep chasing Mm -hmm. (laughs) where this goose comes from and then they happen to run into... What's his name? John Ryder. Who... James Ryder? James Ryder? James Ryder. I don't know. They're either John or James.
0: James, John, who knows?
1: <laughs> Same difference. Like, that's where they were going to end up anyway, and they happen to bump into him, and so that, like, he yeah. things along nicely, mm-hmm. but they take him back to Baker Street.
0: Another active collection. Exactly yes. to
1: what we've been talking about. I think that's significant here, is they don't just, like, okay, let's go sit in this bar, or let's take you to the police station. They get him in a cab. They ride in a cab for a half an hour, all of them sitting in silence. <laughs> so And awkward. then they hear this out. <laughs> so funny. And then Holmes has this very interesting moment of being sort of judge and jury mm-hmm. in one go.
0: Right, because he elicits the story from Ryder to say, like, hey, you're here. Tell me the story. I got to collect my little story. Got to hear what's going on. And Ryder just <laughs> confesses immediately, just doesn't even try not to. <laughs> no. And spills his guts. Yeah. Yeah. And just... I mean, he
1: faints first, and they give him a little brandy to, like, buck him up so he can tell the story, which I think is a funny detail.
0: Yeah, he's definitely not cut out for um, jewel thievery. No. We do not have a lupa on our hands here.
1: He's sort of pitiful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Situation, totally.
1: Which is definitely how Holmes thinks of him.
0: Yeah, well, it's really interesting, the Holmes' reaction to Ryder. Or he says he's not got blood enough to go in for felony with impunity, Give him a dash of branding. So now he looks a little more human. What a shrimp it is, to be sure. <laughs> what a shrimp it is. What a shrimp it is. Yeah, I like
1: for Holmes saying, like, this guy doesn't have enough guts to actually commit a felony is like an insult. Yeah. <laughs> Not like, like me. Most of the time that would be a yeah. good thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But now he's like, Oh, you're letting me down. Yeah. Where's the panache? And then he has this bit where, um big writer at one point sort of like prostates himself and he's like begging for mm-hmm. holmes to forgive him and holmes goes get back in your chair yeah <laughs> it is very well to cringe and crawl but you thought little enough of this poor horner in the dock for a crime of which he knew knew nothing so doesn't have a lot of sympathy for this guy feeling sorry for himself mm-hmm. or, or he i think he's interested in hearing his story he doesn't want his like self-pitying justification
0: well what's interesting to me about this is two things Mm. One is that from what we've seen before in previous stories, that Holmes does admire clever criminals, mm-hmm. like in the Red-Headed League. So when you contrast Ryder with that, it makes a lot of sense. The other thing that's really interesting to me is that, I mean, he brings up Horner, which is really, I think, the reason that what Ryder did ends up having to be something that Holmes has to rectify. Because right. if if John Horner weren't currently in jail and mm-hmm. maybe getting seven years in a penal colony, maybe none of this would matter as much, which is really the big crime to me in the story. It's like, yeah, go ahead and steal. Steal from the rich. Steal from the
1: rich. Go for Just it. Just do it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you won't have any qualms for me. <laughs> but I think the real issue here is that he frames this plumber who was like recently married it seems like, recently has a family, and it's just, yeah. like, trying to have a nice Christmas.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. It's, like, the day after Christmas, too. Or a t- mm-hmm. couple days after Christmas. So this guy was in jail over Christmas. That <sighs> sucks. rough.
0: But Holmes is really just, like, not having Ryder's self-pity. Holmes essentially exonerates Ryder. He hears the story that Ryder tells about You know, the process of how he stole the carbuncle and then how he shoved it down the goose's throat and lost the goose and so on and so forth and ended up in Baker Street. And then Holmes just lets him go. So rather than taking
1: him to the police station to get the other guy out of jail, he sort of decides, well, I've got the jewel and that should be good enough, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Right. And the moment that this happens is great. Watson writes that there was a long silence broken only by his heavy breathing and by the measured tapping of Sherlock Holmes's fingertips upon the edge of the table. Then my friend rose and threw open the door. Get out, said he. What, sir? Oh, heaven bless you. No more words. Get out. Great moment.
1: And I think the line after that is like, He needed no hesitation. He was (laughs) like, he was out of there.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like
1: a rabbit. (laughs) Yeah. Across the street and
0: into the night. But I like this moment of, like, deliberation where Holmes is, like, fingertips tapping on the edge of the table, thinking, like, do I do it? Do I do it? Do I let him Mm go?
1: Once he decides, he's just like, go. Don't make me change my mind. Get out of here. I can't stand to look at you for another second.
0: Yeah, the thing that would induce Holmes to deliver writer to the police would be i think for horner's sake yeah and that's really it
1: <laughs> i don't know if he's a compelling villain i think he's a, com- a lot of times in these stories the villains have a lot of panache we've seen some pretty mm-hmm. good ones recently and i think it's nice narratively to see somebody who's kind of just like made a stupid decision and got in over his head yeah. which clearly is what happens here presumably holmes just kind of like Turns the jewel over and goes, Oh, well, I don't know where I, it was inside this goose. Yeah. What do you know? Weird, um, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's strange. <laughs> and doesn't explain the rest of their evening at all. Mm-hmm. And everybody gets to go home scot free. I don't know. Like, if you contrast this guy with some of the other villains that we've seen him go head to head with who go to prison, like our other sort of big thief in the Redheaded League. Yeah. Where Holmes has a lot of, like, respect for his ability to pull off this crime, but he lets him go to jail. Versus Ryder, who Holmes seems to have no respect for at all, but let's go.
0: Yes. Well, and I think that part of it, it being a Christmas story, is, like, season of forgiveness, goodwill towards men, that sort of thing. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is set during Christmas and that Holmes lets this guy go.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about the last paragraph of the Blue Carbuncle, which is where Holmes expresses exactly this. So what he says, and he's he's reaching his hand up for his clay pipe specifically as he's saying this, which is a nice, it's always nice to know, like, which pipe he's smoking. But he goes, after all, Watson, I am not retained by the police to supply their deficiencies. (laughs) If Horner were in danger, it would be another thing. But this fellow will not appear against him and the case must collapse. I suppose that I am committing a felony, but it is just possible that I am saving a soul. Wonderful line. Mm-hmm. This fellow will not go wrong again. He is too terribly frightened. Send him to jail now, and you make him a jailbird for life. Besides, it is the season of forgiveness. Chance has put in our way a most singular and whimsical problem, <laughs> and its solution is its own reward. And then- That's significant. Yes. Every sentence in this paragraph is interesting.
0: Yeah, it really is. And like, maybe we should actually just like talk about it line by line really yeah. like genuinely <laughs>
1: like so the first thing he says of course is that he's not retained by the police to supply their
0: deficiencies great line great sentiment accurate and this is what i mm-hmm. meant about the the benefits of private detection is that yeah. he is not tied to the police and does not have to follow the letter of the law and can do justice on his own he can act as judge watson can act as jury which we see Mm -hmm. in more explicit terms in a future story i think this is really the appeal of sherlock holmes and of private detection amateur detection broadly is because like if i think that crime fiction in many ways is about police corruption right and so like you don't have amateur detectives without police corruption like you don't have that fiction Unless like you have an issue with the police, and I think part of the issue with the police too, just like to put it in Victorian context, is like class based, and is actually like a very classist issue. Because like if the police are typically like lower class, then the bourgeois are having this resistance to being policed by people of a lower by someone who class they see standard. Than them. Yes, precisely. Mm-hmm. So that's where a lot of like the bumbling police detective comes out of in Victorian fiction, and then you get, like, the more intelligent, bourgeois, highbrow private detective, you know, to contrast that. So that's there, but I think also part of it is really due to police corruption as well. Certainly by the time that, you know, we're talking about this, I think, (laughs) like, vast swaths of crime fiction is just, like, about police corruption, and you wouldn't have private eyes without that. So that's the benefit, really. Of being your own detective and not having yeah. to you know sign over to the police.
1: And it's nice that to have Holmes kind of come out and say it.
0: Yeah. It's I'd funny. Really explicit terms which I don't necessarily think we've seen before
1: this. And then you get this if Horner were in danger it would be another thing but this fellow will not appear against him and the case must collapse. So there we get some more information about what's going to happen next is Horner presumably is going to get let go.
0: I guess Holmes will have to return the gem in this, yeah, case. Must, then, must, in this yeah. case. Yeah he must He must Yes. Because, like, how else are you going to prove that Horner that is guy innocent? this didn't steal it. Holmes' reasoning hinges on Horner and letting uh-huh. him go.
1: I suppose that I'm commuting a felony, but it is just possible that I'm saving a soul.
0: Eh.
1: Eh. Eh. Everyone's a felon in this story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really like this, though. I mean, I think that's a nice sentiment. And I think that, like, you know, was it worth it to Holmes to put Ryder... In prison,
1: seeing him consider the moral question of whether it is right to jail somebody—I think that is is such a
0: compelling topic—and I don't think that the Holmes stories dive deep enough into it. It makes me think a little bit of um, our episode on *The House of Silk* by Anthony Horowitz, where Watson has that really great passage where he talks about, like, you know, I've helped Holmes on so many cases. I rarely am in the courtroom. And then i really rarely think about where the 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 criminals go after the courtroom or what happens right, to them yeah. in my role yeah that's a really good um like one of the powers of
1: pastiche is yeah. that you can sort of put that sentiment back into the text where it's it's hinted at here mm-hmm. but oftentimes it's sort of written around and yeah. it's present
0: yeah or like not analyzed in too much depth no
1: yeah no one thinks too much about what happens to the criminals after they go to jail
0: Yeah, and I think just, like, this idea, like, in the next piece of the dialogue where Holmes says, like, he's not going to go wrong again, he's too scared, if you send him to jail, no, you're going to make him a jailbird for life. That's the same sentiment, really. It's just, like, is it worth it to ruin this man's life?
1: A Valjean situation, (laughs) right? Yeah. Um. Is it
0: worth it to become Javert in this particular instance?
1: (laughs) No. No. (laughs) No, it is not. (laughs) You really want to be chasing John Ryder across the globe? I don't think Right, so. like, he's he's you need a much more <laughs> formidable
0: criminal to be spending all your time <laughs> thinking about, <laughs> <laughs> obsessing over the conclusion of this, about it's a whimsical problem and the solution is its own reward, a sentiment which we've heard again and yep. again.
1: doesn't seem to change no matter how much time goes by or how successful he is or isn't. That's why he's in this. Solution you
0: know. is its own reward.
1: The Sherlock Holmes story. The
0: Sherlock Holmes story. A biography. <laughs> yeah. We'll see this come up several more times throughout the canon in many instances. Um I was thinking a lot about the Abbey Grange during this story. I think that is like maybe a nice little double feature of a story. Um in terms of a uh, judge and jury you know and letting certain crimes go free we've seen him make this decision to
1: punish people outside of the the letter of the law or to let them go in a couple of different instances but it's always fascinating when holmes puts himself or puts watson into like the function of holding a court hearing which yeah kind of is what happened he's like tell me why you did this and then he makes a decision on this guy's fate. The Speckled Band, of course, is like the famous one where he (laughs) chooses to let someone die. Mm -hmm. Sort of the opposite of this, where he's saving someone's life in a way. But that's a very different situation. It's kind of this spur-of-the-moment choice of this is how this is going to play out versus this, which is, he has to sit here and hear this guy's story, and he thinks about it, and it's a very intentional decision for it to play out this way.
0: It is, and I think the whole story is framed in this manner because there's a line early in the story where Holmes is reading the paper, and he says, Hum, so much for the police court. Yeah. So you, he's really setting you up for Holmes to take the court into his own hands because the police mm-hmm. just, like, aren't doing a good enough job. Right, to hold court inside of his living room. hmm And, like, you do see the police in the store just being, like, so willing to pin everything on Horner. You know, like, they don't even try. <laughs>
1: He's a plumber, so he's, like, a tradesman, and Mm. he has a criminal record of some kind. Yes. So he's an easy patsy.
0: So I I think this story has a lot of, like, interesting... Like, I'm just trying to figure out how to word this, because, like, I think it's got these, like, radical potentials nestled Mm. within it, even though it doesn't quite go there, because the gem is ultimately, presumably, returned. The thing that is so appealing about sherlock holmes and probably you know private detective stories more broadly is that sort of like nugget of potential you know Mm -hmm. where it's like you Mm -hmm. do have this potential to do something really radical and you have that power and then it gets sort of diffused by the end i think that holmes is an interesting figure because he's got so much of this like radical potential that he never sees through yeah. I don't think he's cons- I don't think he's conservative. Like I don't think he's a conservative figure in the way that a lot of scholarship has traditionally figured him. I mean, ultimately I think he's self-serving. Oh, for sure. And yeah. that's like he's radical to the point where it's self-serving. You know, and and then that's it. You know, like he can do his own um radical possibilities whether that's through like commuting a felon or through like You know, queerness, as we've discussed, but it's, like, still going to police the Metropole to a certain extent as well. As a character archetype,
1: and in this story, I mean, there's this, always, I think, this, like, dichotomous existence of his ability to live outside of the rules, but still put other people at the mercy of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And very much in this story, his ability to act outside of a formal justice system but still sort of behave that way himself this scene where he's sort of like sitting in his chair you know hearing this man cry and weep and tell his whole story on the floor and beg him um he's very much in the position of authority in the position of judgment and he passes judgment and it's lucky that like i agree with him in this case yeah (laughs) because he could have passed judgment in another way and you'd be like what what were you doing and As always, with Holmes' cases, you have to wonder if this wasn't as good of a mystery. The solution was not its own reward and as satisfying what would have happened.
0: Right. That's the thing with, like, all these private detectives. It's like when we're cheering them on for this, like, vigilante justice that they do because we agree with them, we're like, yeah, hell yeah, do it. But the thing is, like, you have to trust the person into Mm -hmm. whose hands you are putting that power. Mm -hmm. um, Because if it were any other character, potentially, you know, or, you know. Realistically, if it were another man, living person, like no way would you trust that power. I mean, I don't trust yeah, the power to, to, to the one... police either. But like, you yeah. can't also entrust all the power to one dude,
1: to one guy who's doesn't know that the Earth goes around the sun. Oh,
0: right, precisely.
1: It, not to bring up the Abbey Grange again, but makes it really interesting when then he like puts that onus on Watson.
0: Ah, oh, I love that, that scene instead. so much, and I'm so excited to talk about it. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Yeah, I think like
1: takes it's really going to build off of what's happening here and makes Mm. it so much more interesting where like he recognizes that he is not representative of the british man it's it's watson's for in his life yeah yes he doesn't do that here watson kind of just sits there yeah (laughs) he doesn't say anything either way about what happens he's
0: got his little like Claret in his hand, and like,
1: he's drinking his brandy, yeah. and this guy's like crying on the floor, like, Why is this guy watching me like he's watching CSI? Yeah, right
0: <laughs> taking his old notes. Yeah, um, Holmes is such a compelling character though, because of that, mm-hmm. because he is a hypocrite in that way. Oh,
1: yeah, you know, I love, love the him, but he is a
0: huge him. hypocrite, and I think you see that in a lot of detective fiction across the 19th century, not official detective fiction not like bleak house inspector bucket type official police detectives but like wilkie collins novels and the like where you see characters take the law into their own hands because there is a failure of british law to protect the people that it ought to protect i mean i think that
1: that's part of the like detective archetype is yeah Sort of having one standard, but not applying it to yourself or not applying it to someone that you're close to. Like, and I think that a lot of that that archetype comes from Holmes.
0: There's no motivation, or at least least it acknowledges the futility of, like, radical reform. Like, reform Mm. is not on the table in these stories. Mm -hmm. The point is to, like, acknowledge the failure of the law, but then make the enactment of justice an individuating process so, it is only relevant to like the individual and maybe yeah. like the small circle of people yeah. around that. So, like in Holmes's like, case, it'd be
1: it's sort of like a case for reparations in a way.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing with like, you know, like Rust Cole, really.
1: Right? Yeah. I mean, I
0: think like I can think of a hundred
1: sort of detective archetypes that you think of as being transgressive in the way that they move through the world for that reason. And
0: yeah, I mean, Rust Mulder is a great example. Yeah. Of that right?
1: Mulder, Dale Cooper
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the this sh- this story demonstrates the things that we love about Holmes in all of his complexities which is that he is ultimately like a good man who is a huge hypocrite and that's why he's such a good character
1: yeah. because if he was just sort of like a fast-talking emotionless genius which often is sort of how he ends up being iterated
0: mm-hmm. you know, that's an unbearable
1: character and if yeah. he was just self-serving in a completely self-serving sense all the time. That would make him mm. unbearable, but... Or if
0: he were a do-gooder constantly, he'd be, like, a superhero, and I don't think he would be as interesting.
1: Sometimes he's very selfish. Sometimes he's quite altruistic. Sometimes he is both at the same time, in this case. Yes. Where he does something outside of the letter of the law that is objectively the right thing to do, but he's doing it for personal reasons.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh. Love a complex character. Yeah. He's a mess. He's a mess and that really comes through in a lot of the adaptations. But also, like, some of them it doesn't. But I think, like, with this story, it does. The best adaptations.
1: Yeah, adaptations of the story. I mean, there are, there are lots. I think it's a, a frequently adapted tale for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. It's seasonal. It's cozy. It's easy to visualize. Yeah. There are three that I think are interesting that I wanted to mention and talk about. So the first is... This is one of six surviving episodes from a 1960s BBC shir- series where Peter Cushing plays Holmes, this. which I haven't seen. Me and either. a bunch of them were destroyed yes. in some sense. And so there are not very many of these episodes left. Um, and this is one of them that's still out there somewhere.
0: Yeah, I, I needed to see this because, like, I love Peter Cushing, obviously. <laughs> yes. Um, and this is a great story. So I need yeah, to... I'm sure it's delightful so
1: yes. I'll have to check that out the next one is obviously the Granada adaptation which is the seventh episode of the first season so David Burke as Watson it's so good it's um, really good it has a little bit more build up of the robbery scene and the countess who's like really mean and nasty and ordering it's fleshed out really well the staff around so you kind of understand like yeah steal from this mean old lady mm-hmm. it also I think gives Watson it makes him a little bit more involved in the narrative mm-hmm because of this the scene that we haven't really talked about which (laughs) they find the guy who's been selling the birds and holmes sort of recognizes that he's a gambler and his place is a bet
0: in in the adaptation
1: holmes sets it up so he's betting against watson and the guy kind of buys in and watson has to like play along yeah it's really really
0: good and i really like at the end of this episode how jeremy brett delivers the line i'm not you know detained by the (laughs) police in whatever what is the word yeah. <laughs> what's the phrasing to right? supply
1: their deficiencies. yeah he <laughs> says i'm not
0: retained by the police to supply their deficiencies he says it's so like he's like pissed you know like because watson starts to chastise him and he's like was that a good idea holmes and w- holmes is like
1: screw them really it's like the story of watson forlornly trying to <laughs> have a snack yeah well holmes is like we gotta go. We gotta figure out what's
0: going on. And then finally, when they're about to sit down to Christmas dinner, they're like, now we gotta go get James Horner out of
1: jail. But then they have a very sweet, like, Merry Christmas, Holmes. Merry Christmas, yeah, Watson. Yeah, it's At a very
0: sweet little.
1: The scene that it makes me laugh is when they're in the inn and Holmes orders some beers. And he takes, like, one sip and he's like, this is great beer. Where do you buy your geese? And Watson's trying to drink his beer. <laughs> and he, does, he completely fails. He does not drink this beer. And probably all night, he's like, but my beer. Yeah. <laughs> you paid for it. It's back there. <laughs> One of the things I like about the Granada series is Watson is always trying to have a snack and Holmes is always like, no,
0: it's like swatting it out of his hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a really great episode. It's very like it is. delightful and a wonderful episode to watch around this time of year.
1: The other one I want to point out is the um, the radio adaptations, the Clive Marison adaptations from the 90s, which pinnacle of how, how good these are. And they're really, they're really so good, good. And I recommend people listen to them.
0: They're all on archive.org for free go out there enjoy
1: you know if you're road trip into your family's house yeah
0: and they're radio plays so they're not narrations they're like yeah they're acting. enactments mm-hmm.
1: yeah but they they changed the setting of this so it definitely is after watson has gotten married is where it takes place mm-hmm. and there's this like and i'll have to find you know so we can put this on twitter um the sort of stage direction but there's this moment where watson's gonna leave because it's christmas and holmes is sort of like like he doesn't want to say i'm lonely and i want to spend me. christmas with you <laughs> yeah. so he doesn't say it but he sort of says something and watson picks up on it and watson decides oh yeah i'll stay i'll stay which is just this whole other dimension of why this story is so well good. and i
0: think this adaptation very broadly is so good at that relationship and mm-hmm. holmes's dependence on watson is just like it's such a loving relationship in this adaptation, and it's also very, like, they're constantly, like, frustrated with each other, and mm-hmm. then they like, get along so well. It's just, like, such a full, like, living friendship.
1: They're so good. I, I think this would be a good one if you haven't listened to them to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, they're all tremendously great.
0: But really, you can just, like, indulge in all these adaptations just, like, throughout the season, because, like, they're all different enough, I think. You know, and they're all in different formats, so it's, you know, doable for Yeah, sure. read the
1: story, watch it on TV,
0: listen to a radio play, yeah. <laughs> listen to Jory read it. Just get them all done. You got all the month of December to do it. Okay, so um, I have a couple read-slash-watch-alikes. Great. My first suggestion is The Watchmaker of Filigree Street by Natasha mm. Pulley, which is a personal favorite of mine and, like, my go-to, like... Comfort read, yeah. I mean, it's like incredibly stressful the first time you're reading it, but then <laughs> I don't like know how
1: comfort, like once you know how it shakes out, it's comforting. But yeah, yeah. The first time I read this novel, I just was like,
0: every time I read anything by Natasha Pulley, I'm clenched like, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> with anxiety yeah. of what was gonna play out. me do. Um, it's really good. I love it's it.
0: It's really good. So it's it's a historical fiction that's got like a dash of fantasy, speculative elements, but it's not, like, high fantasy by any means. It's about this clerk named Daniel, and <clears throat> about this watchmaker named Keita More, who can remember the future. It's about this cross-dressing physicist named Grace Caro, and I don't really want to, like, give too much away because it's hard to talk about it but it's it's a it's sort of like a mystery and it's sort of um a romance and the reason I think I was thinking about it is because like there's a lot of wintry scenes and there's a lot of like stuff with the law and like moving around the law it's one of my favorite books and so I knew I was going to recommend it somewhere In this podcast, but I think that this is a good one. And I would also say that there's like a sort of Holmes and Watson dynamic heading. That was exactly my thought is I don't think it's an adaptation, but I think it's a story that could
1: not exist without that character dynamic. We've mentioned this a couple times, but it's something we want to get around to doing a full episode about. And I think it's a really nice example of like that dynamic between these two characters and something that's not a strict adaptation. What I see as the through thread with the blue carbuncle is there are these couple of scenes in the book where people are just sort of like following clues and chasing Mm, things throughout mm. a big city yeah it's it's very increasing tension as you're going which you really see in this story and i think that's a really nice like a really appealing part of it five times as stressful
0: oh my god it's so stressful but it all works out so don't worry if you want like good queer historical fiction this is it my other book recommendation i'll just mention this very quickly because it's like tangentially related is um Valancourt, which is just, like, a phenomenal publisher that I... I love everything that they put out. They have a series of Victorian Christmas ghost stories. And they've got, like, volumes and volumes of these. And they're beautifully illustrated. I mean, like, the covers are beautiful. Interesting to me that this was once such a mainstay of the season to tell ghost stories. And now that's sort of faded away. Mm, I know. You know, so if you like weirdness in your Christmas stories or your seasonal (gasps) wintertime stories, and I would absolutely recommend this. Like, if you like a Christmas carol, then, like, you have to read these. You know, your typical Victorian ghost story, but it's like Christmas. Yeah. Your typical Victorian ghost story. You know. (laughs) 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 And there's so many of them, too. There's, like, five volumes of these books. Wow. Yeah. And then my final recommendation is the episode of Elementary called Snow Angel. This is the one with the blizzard. It's in season one. Mrs. Hudson is in this episode. Tremendous. She's great. Has nothing to do with like Christmas or anything, but it's set in the winter. There's a blizzard. It's really fun. It's about thievery. And Mm -hmm. Holmes and Watson have to like track down some thieves over, I think, state lines actually. This is sort of like, it's not like a nod really to Blue Carbuncle, but it has similar vibes and it's very cozy by the end. Yeah. And Holmes has a great sweater with like. It's, like, one of those, like, ugly winter sweaters, but it's got, like, llamas on it or something. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. It's, like, everything Johnny Lee Miller wears is in elementary tremendous. is, like, yeah. where do I get that?
1: I know. I want your llama sweater. I want your weird vest. His socks. I want your socks and your graphic t-shirt collection.
0: Yeah. And you can't say enough good things about Lucy Louise Watson. Always just. And Mrs.
1: Hudson. <gasps> mrs hudson. yeah what a, a refreshing and wonderful take on mrs hudson I love yeah
0: her. i think like the woman who plays miss hudson in elementary i think was like probably the first time i had ever seen a trans woman play a trans woman on mm. television yeah. certainly network television and she's so good in it i love their like little dynamic between the three of them
1: the other one i will throw out there mm-hmm. i mentioned this already but it feels a little obvious if you want A really slapsticky, goofy mystery about missing jewels and detectives failing to find them is, of course, Pink Panther. Yeah. (laughs) It has nothing to do... uh, No, it actually does. They're at like a ski resort. It's winter. There you go. It Actually, is a very good recommendation that I'm thinking about it. I rewatched that movie, like the really classic one. Uh Not the newer one with Steve Martin. I rewatched it this year for some reason. And it's so funny.
0: I just love a winter time mystery yes just like perfect and i
1: love a a period piece set in a ski resort because the sweaters are always the best yes and there's a lot of really great skiing outfits yeah i don't <laughs> ski
0: but i would like very oh me neither much be into like going to a ski resort and just like and just
1: like lounging by the fire with a negroni in a big sweater precisely that's skiing yeah
0: for me <laughs> there you go oh my god we didn't include this okay sorry we have to include this two tiny little things that i just like have at the end of my notes here one holmes describes himself as a foul fancier when he's trying to figure out where the ghost comes from an alternate really niche name of our podcast i think he's just like i think he's talking to henry baker and he's like by the way where'd you get your bird i'm a foul fancier i have to know and we also skimmed over this very famous line. He says, my name is Sherlock Holmes. It is my business to know what other people don't know. I love that so much. It's like, ooh, what a line. What a line. What a line.
1: How long has he practiced that one in the mirror?
0: That's his, like, slogan or They're, like his, That's um, on his little catchphrase cards. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like this line shows up in many adaptations mm. oh, as yeah. well. Yeah.
1: One of those iconic lines that people pull into any Holmes adaptation they ever do ever.
0: Well, it's such a perfect encapsulation of his character, and it's so, um, like masterful and commanding, yeah. Right? Where he's just like, It's my business to know what other people don't know,
1: it's who I That's am, it's my job. That is, yeah. in a way, his profession. In the next episode, we're not doing a story. We're doing a special case file of one of our favorite adaptations, the Soviet film series The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Yes. We're really excited to talk so about this. Good. It's also nice to have um, a title
0: that's got Watson's name I in yeah. it as well as Holmes. Yeah, and these are all so. on YouTube. Yes. If you want to watch them now, please go ahead. They're so good. They are in Russian, but the YouTube version has has subtitles. subtitles. I feel like they're they're easy
1: enough to follow. You got two weeks to catch up with us (laughs) so we can talk about them. And a special thanks to our narrator, Jory Taylor. You can send your thoughts on this episode to howeverimprobablepod at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at improbablepod. Our website, howeverimprobablepodcast.com, has got transcripts, the research behind the episode, and suggestions for further reading. If you enjoyed the show and can spare a moment, please rate and review.
0: However Improbable is created by Marissa Mercurio and Sarah Culp, with apologies to Arthur Conan Doyle. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, dear listeners, believe us to be very sincerely yours.